Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Hello and welcome to another episode in our podcast series, Beyond Markets. My name is Cheryl Tan and I'm Head of Fund Specialist Asia at Julius Baer. In our last podcast on private credit, we discussed the broader private credit space with a focus on opportunities in the U.S. Today, we will take a closer look at the more nascent European private credit market. To share insights and discuss opportunities across the pond in the European direct lending space, we are extremely privileged to have with us Paolo Epen, head of Blackstone Credits Europe and APAC private credit business. While perhaps better known for their U.S. direct lending expertise, Blackstone has been investing in Europe since 2006 and is one of the top players in the European private credit market, with $29 billion invested and committed since 2010. Paolo joined Blackstone in 2006 and is an original member of the London team involved in setting up their European credit business. Hi, Paolo. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Cheryl. Very glad to be here. Over the past few years, there's been heightened interest in U.S. middle market direct lending and a proliferation of funds investing in the space. But little is known about the European private credit market. Paolo, could you kick us off today with a brief overview of the European private credit market landscape and opportunities set vis-a-vis the U.S.? Sure, I'm happy to. Perhaps that's a misconception. The European private credit market has been in place. You know, we started doing it really from inception in 2006, but no doubt the market has grown. The private credit market, like in the US, really germinated out of the GFC. Balance sheet constraints have been more restrictive in Europe than have been in the US. That's created a demand supply imbalance and created a void, a vacuum that private credit in Europe has helped to fill. It's driven by the restrictive balance sheets, non-performing loans on bank balance sheets, increased regulation, increased scrutiny, and lack of flexibility, and a difference in attitude. The way we do private credit is to invest and hold risk for the long term. We, as Blackstone, have stepped into that void and grown private credit to the tremendous franchise it is today in Europe. Like you said, we've invested close to 30 billion euros since 2010, and the markets present an even more attractive opportunity for private equity to fill in today's market, when we see capital markets shut down, increasing pressure on bank balance sheets, but the demand side is still strong for corporate M&A, corporate refinancing, corporate acquisitions. There's still a strong demand that has really grown private credit and accelerated the adoption of private credit. There's an increasing view that private credit may be one of the few games in town for corporates and European corporates that need access to capital. Well, I think one of the key reasons behind the significant investor interest and fund flows into U.S. private credit was the proliferation of open-ended semi-liquid investment vehicles in recent times. Do you see the same trend in Europe? We do. There hasn't been the BDC market in Europe, so it's all been driven by institutional fundraising. We've been a great beneficiary of that as the large sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, insurance companies from all around the world embrace private credit. But we really think the opportunity is to offer that same institutional grade, institutional caliber investing through Blackstone now to the high net worth channel. And that's unique to Europe. But the demand is really driven by the balanced approach to today's risk. We're very focused on the top of the capital structure, senior secured, first lien risk, 100% floating rate, 100% cash pay and income driven. That's a great proposition for today's market where we see a step up in rates 
you have the defensive nature of those investments because they're senior secured. They're the first in line to get repaid. They're the last in line to be buffered by volatility. And so the combination of higher base rates driving higher returns, but increased defensiveness because of where you are in the capital structure, we think it's a really good balanced proposition for the environment we're seeing today in the US, in Europe, and across the world, really, but particularly adapted to what we're seeing in Europe. Another reason why investors flocked to US private credit was rising rates in the US and consequent extreme volatility across the fixed income market. Since private credit investments are floating rate and have no duration, in fact, private credit stands to benefit from climbing interest rates. Now that the ECB is also in a tightening mode and European fixed income markets are getting roiled, are you seeing a pickup in interest from European private credit investments as well? Absolutely, Cheryl. As I said, the institutional investor class has been making that transition from fixed income into private credit for the last decade. Institutional investors have embraced the fact that a 60-40 equity fixed income portfolio is not the right approach for long-term diversification. So that asset allocation from our institutional investors has been happening over time, but largely driven by a, a low interest rate environment, a low yield or low returns that they were getting in fixed income. And when you've added on volatility on top of that to fixed income, we're seeing an accelerated adoption of private credit, mainly, as you said, because of the floating rate nature and the defensive nature of what we're providing. So it's really about picking and choosing your spots in the midst of that volatility. And I'll spend time on it as we continue this conversation. But that is our approach to be thematic, alpha-driven, is really how we intend to drive attractive risk-adjusted returns. Interesting. So these open-ended European private credit offerings sure seems very attractive, given the prospects of higher rates in Europe and UK and continued volatility across European fixed income markets. You know, Cheryl, just to pick up on one point you did touch on right at the end there, base rates are climbing in Europe and UK now for the first time. You can see an interest income base rate expansion on the forward rate basis that's continuing to rise. So that provides a tailwind for European investing that perhaps has plateaued versus the US. And so that forward visibility is really important from a floating rate perspective to help differentiate the returns versus other asset classes in what we're seeing today. Thanks for that added insight. So with the wider spreads and higher base rates, how has the yield changed for European direct loans from the start of the year, perhaps? And are there any insights and opportunities that are unique to Blackstone? Well, the rate equation is one part of it. We've seen 0% base rates in Europe move to 1.2% on a spot rate basis and above 2% on a forward curve basis. The same for Sonia in the UK, going from 0.6% to 3% today with a forward curve in excess of 4.5%. So we embed the yield expansion on a one-to-one basis from base rates, but it's not just about base rates. Because of the lack of competition, we're actually increasing spreads today. There's not a lot of large market private credit formation in Europe, and you haven't had the proliferation of semi-liquid vehicles. So that's given us the opportunity to move spreads up in addition to base rates. It's one of the few times in my career where you've seen Rates pick up and spreads widening because of volatility, but also because of the lack of competition. So we can price risk today with spreads that have moved from 55 to 6% at the beginning of this year to 65 to even 7% on a spread basis. And then you add a 3-4% base rate on top of that. You're getting to attractive returns in the 10 to 12% range on an asset level, which is about 300 basis points higher than we were seeing at the end of last year and at the beginning of this year. So that repricing is a combination of everything, that the holistic environment we're seeing today. And that allows us to also 
re-rate risk. We're moving even further up market and scale of companies. We've always been thematic. We have this approach across all of Blackstone, which we colloquially call good neighborhoods. We want to find businesses in sectors that have higher growth, an element of acyclicality, and secular growth. So we believe these companies and these industries, like life sciences, like healthcare, like ERP software, like content, like logistics, like insurance, have fundamental growth drivers that don't have exposure to economic volatility, and which goes back to being thematic and not volume-driven. So we don't want to buy the market. We want to pick and choose our spots. And that's what we can offer as Blackstone with unique insight into numerous industries and sectors and have a one degree of connectivity to just about any company around the world where we can bring our tremendous resource, wealth of collective knowledge and insight to bear to really identify those companies. It's certainly not easy, but uh, I think we're well equipped to do it. And that's what we're expressing every day in this thematic view. Sounds like stars are all aligned. But the Ukraine crisis and ensuing energy crunch has plunged the European economy further into a recession. Energy prices, inflation remain persistently high and growth is flagging. So from JB Research perspective, we remain cautious on European credit space, preferring to focus on IG corporate bonds and to a certain extent subordinated bank debt for now. So from your perspective, is the investment case for European private credit still valid given this macro environment that we're in? I'd say we have a similar view to your research analysts at BJB. You know, we want to avoid fixed rate credit. We want to avoid anything that has a longer duration associated with it. We want to avoid anything that has a long-term rental nature where you have fixed contracts or lease costs associated with it. So we like floating rate loans, shorter duration with that thematic overlay I talked about which also have just a higher rotation. The average hold period for these loans are three years. In the context of floating rates and readjustments and refinancings, that creates a shorter duration to get the benefit of higher interest income, but also NAV accretion along the way. So certainly, yes, there's a challenging European, if not global macroeconomic picture, but it's about, like I said, picking and choosing your spots. Position defensively, senior secured floating rate to large businesses in the right sectors. Now, you mentioned earlier, good neighborhoods, larger companies. Can you give us a sense of the size of the companies that you would be lending to? You're right, Cheryl. We do like larger companies. You know, we raise big pools of capital because we want to provide holistic solutions to larger businesses. You know, it is statistical that businesses with less than 50 million of EBITDA have four times more, a higher default rate than businesses with higher than 50 million of EBITDA. The average EBITDA of what we've done in the last six months of companies are over 100 million. So these are larger businesses. They have global operations, global revenues, and diversification. That's why we focus on the larger end. But to focus on the larger end, you need big pools of capital. You need the track record. You have the credibility and the reputation as Blackstone to provide those solutions. Okay, so... The floating rate nature of private credit is definitely attractive from an investor standpoint, given rising rates. But if the loan rates keep going up in, under these you know, dreadful economic conditions, wouldn't it cause default risks to pick up substantially? It can do, Cheryl, across the broader market, which is why we spend so much time on due diligence, stress testing, analyzing, forensic accounting, understanding the cost structures of these companies not just from a P&L basis, but from a cash flow basis, from a balance sheet basis, 
can we stress test what happened in the GFC on this company's cash flows? And that's a detailed analysis on gross margin, rising input costs, wage inflation, on OPEX, on EBITDA margins, all the way down to free cash flow after interest with a pickup in interest expense. And that's why we focus on the senior secured part of the capital structure, which is why we bring down the leverage. Investments we've made over the last six months since Russia-Ukraine have an average loan-to-value of 34%. The investments we made in the 12 months prior to then had an average loan-to-value of 46%. So you've seen that re-risking and going down the route of even larger businesses, but with lower risk, lower leverage, where we are confident that with the revenue growth that we see in these thematic sector selections, we will have the ability to withstand on an idiosyncratic company-by-company basis rising rates. But no doubt, it takes a lot of resource to do the analysis. You know, we've been operating since 2006, 15, 16 years of doing this through numerous cycles. One of the carrots we provide is we're the sole lender. We can provide you something flexible, provide you that certainty. But one of the sticks is we're the sole lender. And so if something goes wrong, we have a whole team, a whole asset management franchise that comes to bear as Blackstone to restructure these businesses, change management teams, change boards, change strategy, or improve these companies using our Blackstone Advantage program generally. And that allows us to drive in private credit higher recovery upon default than the liquid markets where you're a forced seller. And that explains our performance, our track record, and low realized loss ratio as Blackstone credit in Europe over a long period of time. And I think that will certainly play through to what we're doing today. And can you get ahead of the problem? So get ahead of a potential default? before it actually becomes a default situation? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. You know, it's really important to get well ahead of it. By being the sole lender, we can demand access. We have monthly information. We're talking to the management teams. So we are able to see the direction of travel of these companies. What's happening with rising energy costs? Are we exposed? Do you have hedges that are rolling off? Are you facing margin compression? Are you facing cash flow compression? Are you facing temporary liquidity squeezes? By getting ahead of that, you can provide the solutions or push the shareholders of the, of the company to put equity in ahead of time and really resolve the situation before it's too late. And that's core to what we do, Cheryl. Absolutely. Comforting to know. Probably critical in these turbulent times. So the European economy is clearly diverse and it's multi-speed. Are there particular countries that you would avoid or focus your direct lending on? The so-called, which are your good neighborhoods? From a regional perspective, we're very focused on just core Western Europe, and that's been the case since we started, pre-GFC. You know, we have offices across Europe, and that's really in places like Dublin, Frankfurt, Madrid, Milan, Paris. So we focus on larger companies, but one nuance that I want to make sure is clear, that whether or not these businesses are based in these jurisdictions or these cities as headquarters, these are typically pan-European or global companies rather than any single country exposure. And that helps with the diversification. But we haven't really gone east of Germany. And we can find a great opportunity set in core Western Europe and finding even more so in today's market. Well, these days, selecting the right sectors to invest in is critical as well. So are there sector preferences in the private credit space? Yes, absolutely, Cheryl. And we're dynamic about that. Picking the right sectors for the right companies in the right industries for that point in time. You know, Europe hasn't really grown since the GFC. So in a low to no growth environment, we've been forcing and challenging ourselves from a sector and thematic perspective to find industries that are growing. And that sounds easier said than done, but things like 
ERP software, which benefit from data management, optimization, shift to the cloud, for instance, healthcare and life sciences, which have a demographic tailwind, shift towards health and well-being, services oriented towards healthcare, professional services, as companies move to optimize, outsource, bring down their fixed cost structures. We feel their fundamental tailwinds there. Energy transition in Europe is a big theme. The lack of infrastructure spending in Europe is a big theme. Single-family home shortages in Europe is a widespread phenomenon across all of Europe. So those are the types of industries and examples where we feel that there's a long-term secular tailwind that's going to drive more than GDP+. plus. GDP plus growth rates aren't enough when you're facing inflation. So we want to be in sectors and companies that have a 7, 10, 15% annualized growth profile. And that helps mitigate cyclicality, helps mitigate margin compression, helps mitigate inflation. What we don't want to do in this environment is asset-heavy cyclicals. We like high-free cash flow businesses with have low capital intensity and the lack of cyclicality. And certainly any business or any industry that could face obsolescence. That's part of the challenge. Since you're based in London, I'll finish off with this last question. You're based in London, you're closer to the market there. Can you give us a sense of, you know, investor and corporate sentiment, as well as maybe PE sponsor activity in UK as well as Europe in general right now? Well, there's a general risk-off approach, I feel, that's in our in investor channels. You know, we feel it. We're wondering where is the right place to put risk and allocate risk. You see it in the reduction in M&A volumes. You know, corporates, European corporates are wondering if they should take that risk with their balance sheet cash. Should they be making acquisitions in a volatile environment? Now, the flip side to that is, yes, while M&A volumes are down significantly, private equity is making nearly the opposite bet. They look at the discrepancy in valuations in Europe versus the U.S., in the UK public markets versus the US public markets, there's a clear value gap. That's attracting what we call public-to-private transactions. Large private equity sponsors looking to delist public companies and take them private because of that valuation gap. The private equity sponsors, unlike the GFC and the private credit universe, are pretty much awash with capital. So transactions, new M&A can get done. We've seen significant large transactions Multi-billion dollar, multi-billion euro transactions get financed. But for credit, M&A isn't the only driver. We see refinancings. Private equity sponsors want to hold assets for longer. They need a longer dated capital structure. They want to make what we call tuck-in acquisitions. A lot of our existing portfolio companies are looking to acquire smaller companies, which are very attractive at a lower valuation and very synergistic to counter any revenue headwinds. That's driving a lot of our activity. And we're providing just dry powder to European corporates if they need them and when they need them in the absence of other options. I would say our activity levels are probably down 15 to 20% versus M&A volumes down 50 to 60% because M&A isn't just the only driver for private credit volume. Very interesting. Sounds like very exciting and busy times ahead for you and your team in Europe, Paolo. Yes, we're very, very busy at this point and trying to raise capital, but also deploy that capital with the right risk. Well, good luck with that. It was a real pleasure having you with us today. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives on the European private credit space and where the attractive opportunities are. And certainly, importantly, how Blackstone manages this very challenging environment that we're in now. As the saying goes, there's opportunity in chaos that you mentioned. And this brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you everyone for tuning in and goodbye. Für unsere deutschsprachigen Zuhörer. 
We would also like to make you aware of Marktanalysen und Gespräche, a monthly podcast in German, where Julius Baer experts discuss some of the latest market developments. We share our key research and insights on today's ever-changing economic landscape in German. Search for Marktanalysen und Gespräche on your favorite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.